Thank you, Rebecca. Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians 5. Please open up your Bible or your Bible app, or you can grab one of these papers at the back as well with the passage. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your own fellowship the the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens a whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kevin. If you can keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm sure that'll help you as I go through it, especially since it's such a a heavy topic um, and controversial topic in many ways. And so if you don't have the Bible with you, uh, these sheets are at the back. You can pick that up, but let's uh, uh, make sure that we are speaking. Um, You make sure that I'm speaking from the scripture and that God's speaking to you. Let's pray together as we come to his word. Lord, we thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your wonderful light to be your people. And Lord, help us to know what that means. Help us to know your amazing grace and love through Jesus Christ, but the holiness and righteousness that you've brought uh, through him as well. Help us to be a community that's marked by all of that, by your character. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Who should receive communion? Now, this question was brought to the fore this past summer in the U.S. uh, when the U.S. bishops met to discuss whether they should give uh, communion to this pro-choice Catholic president, Joe Biden. Uh, Of course, the Catholic Church's stance on abortion is decidedly pro-life. And so they met to discuss this issue. Should he be given communion? It's a complicated matter. Progressive Catholics shared memes. I don't know if you've seen one of these things uh, with the words of Pope Francis, who said, Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and nourishment for the weak, implying that all those who come to the communion table should be given God's grace. 
But there is a limit to that logic, isn't there? What if this person who's coming to the Lord's table is not repentant, is not penitent of a sin? Yeah, uh, think about what if we were part of the Confessing Church, the Lutheran Church during the World War II, and Hitler came to the church to receive communion. Knowing what we all know now, should he, give, should he receive communion? Should he be given communion? Shouldn't the church say, no, whatever you say about your faith, you are not part of the body of Jesus Christ. Shouldn't the church say, no, you are not, uh, you have no place here in the church? Let's take a harder one. What about a con artist? Say there's a con artist who's stealing people's money and people in the church as well. He's, he's been doing it for a while and he comes to the Lord's table. Should he be given communion? Well, what if this person is repentant? He's remorseful of his sins. Well, what if he's actually remorseful? He says he's remorseful, but he keeps doing the same thing again and again, even within the church. Should he be given communion? That's difficult, isn't it? I'm sure you might say, well, it depends. It does depend. Church discipline is complicated. Actually, these principles that Jesus gives and Paul gives, uh, they are there, but actually in carrying it out in actuality is a really difficult thing that requires a lot of wisdom. But I hope you can see that there might be a time when this is necessary. Church discipline is a necessary tool that God has given us. In fact, we're commanded to exercise it. We're commanded because we, the church, are a people of God, people whom God has called to be different from the world. From out there, God has called us to be his holy people, to live out God's goodness to the world, to show the world God's goodness. And that sometimes means taking drastic measures, including the discipline of excluding people from membership, from the communion table. And we do this for the good of the disciplined, for the good of the church, good of the world, and good of the name of Jesus. So let's think about this a bit. Um, so uh, before, I think it's, our, uh, it's, um, uh, it's accepted that John 3.16 was the most well-known verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. When whoever, uh, uh, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But... These days, the most famous verse from the Bible might be actually Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Everybody knows this, even non-Christians know this, because it captures the spirit of the age, that we're not supposed to judge one another. Because the virtue of the world out there, the only sin, uh, virtue of the world out there is tolerance. The only sin that they recognize is intolerance not being able to accept people. And that attitude has come into the church. It has seeped into the church. When actually, chapter 7, verse 1, do not judge, that passage isn't really about withholding opinion about a sinful behavior. That's not what that's about. If you read carefully there and, and the verses on, he'll then talk about how we shouldn't be judgmental and we shouldn't be hypocritical in our judgment. He goes on to say, look, you can't judge another person when you have a huge log coming out of your eyes. You can't go for a person's speck uh, when you have this huge thing in your eye. You, you remove the log in your eyes before you 
before you can judge another person. It's about hypocrisy. It's about judgmentalism, this wanting to get other people's sin out to the fore. No, actually Jesus tells us to judge. In Matthew, the same book, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells us to exercise this uh, spiritual discipline of church discipline. He tells us when a person sins that we must go and confront the person in private. And if this person does not repent, get one or two people along with them and to, 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 to bring about this repentance. If this person still does not repent, then we come to the church and we say, actually, this person has been doing this and we must, uh, we must exclude this person from membership and from the Lord's table. And think about the context of this book in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. For the first four chapters, you've been nodding your heads as we've been going through this book, saying, Paul is saying, look, you are judging uh, wrongly. You're judging with the world, uh, world standards and not God's standards. You see, judgment wasn't the problem. Wrong judgment was the problem. Judging with the world standards was the problem. And Paul's been saying, you must judge the apostles and one another with the spiritual wisdom, with the standard of the cross. That's how we are to see and judge one another. And so in this chapter, Paul pronounces his judgment in verse 3 against this immoral person. In the name of our Lord Jesus, he tells them to kick this person out of the church. Contrary to popular opinion, Christians must judge. We must judge. We must not judge with the standard of the world. We must not judge hypocritically. We must not judge, verse 12, those who are not Christians, people who are outside of the church, people who don't know Jesus, how can we judge them with the Lord's standard when they don't know Jesus yet? Verse 13, God is their judge, but we must judge those who claim to be Christian, those who wear the same cross, those who say Jesus is their Lord. We must hold them to Lord to our Lord's standards. We must do it because we together are called to be God's holy people. And that's the point that Paul's trying to make in verses seven and eight with the Paschal lamb and the and the bread. I know that most of you know the story, but let me just quickly reiterate it. Uh, in Israel, when Israel wore Israelites wore slaves in Egypt uh, God, through Moses, brought all these judgments upon the Egyptians, and they did not let the Israelites go until the last plague, the killing of the firstborn. But instead of the firstborn, they were given the option of killing a lamb and getting that blood and pasting it over the doorframe of each house. And that happened as the last act of judgment. And the, the people who had the lamb's blood pasted, well, they, they were saved. But, of course, um, Pharaoh, he did not obey. His son died. And it was only then the Pharaoh let the Israelites go. And on that day, Moses told uh, the, the people that they should pack unleavened bread. They should pack unleavened bread because uh, the, the, they didn't have time for the yeast to work through the dough. They didn't have time, and so they were supposed to just pack bread, make bread with, without any yeast, and take them with them because they were going to go on a long journey. You see, the Paschal lamb and unleavened bread became then their, their symbol of their freedom. 
their new status as God's people. They were freed from slavery. And that's what that meant. The Paschal Lamb has been sacrificed. Now people, you live as people of a new, new people, people who are freed from slavery to sin. You see, verse 7, Christ Our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep this festival. He is saying, look, you are a new people in Christ because Jesus became the price of your freedom. You are now freed from slavery to sin, from malice and wickedness. You are a new people in Christ. Live as such. Of course, that doesn't mean that we can't, um, we, we will live perfectly but he does say that we live as new people that's who you are live with god's truth in sincerity he says church we are a holy people because of jesus jc bishop jc ryle uh, writes in his classic uh, book holiness we must be holy because this is one grand end and purpose for which christ came into the world Jesus is a complete savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of the believer's sin. He does more. He breaks its power. He has broken the power of sin from our lives. We are freed and redeemed people. When Christ died and he called us to himself, he freed us from the power of sin as well. And that is who we are. And we must get rid of the old ways of malice and wickedness and live as his holy people. To return to sin, in Apostle Peter's words, is like a dog returning to its own vomit. A pig returning to its own its mud after a wash in First Peter uh, two twenty two. Sin is not who we are. Sin is what we have been saved from. So, church, let me ask: What is your attitude towards sin? When sin is in our midst, verse two, is there a deep mourning for it? Mourning because of it. Is there a sense of the heaviness of our heart? Uh, Is there a desire to get rid of it? Are are there sins that that just become part of your life? Sin that you tolerate? Sin that you think, well, that's just just me. Sin that we even boast of. We must judge ourselves. We must judge one another, each other. We must hold each other accountable Because we are a community that God has called to be holy, to wear the name of Jesus. And if there is, when there is a diagnosis of spiritual tumor, of unrepentant sin, or unrepentant sinner among us in the community, the treatment is its removal. We understand this on an individual level. Right? We understand this when Jesus says, look, if your eye causes you to to sin, cut it out. Your hand causes you to sin, cut it out. Feed, cut it out. He's not actually saying that you must cut your body parts out. But he is saying that we need to take sin seriously and we must take drastic measures to cut it out from our life. But what if there are members of the church here who refuses to acknowledge their sinfulness, that that they're sinning at all, who are tolerant, who are proud even of their, uh, uh, their sins. 
they do not, they have not declared their fight against that sin. And Paul's instruction for this person is very clear. Verse 1. This person there has been sinning. They've been, he has been living with his father's, uh, father's wife. It's a it's case of incest forbidden in Leviticus 8, uh, chapter 18. Even the Corinthians, these Corinthians were known for their terrible sexual ethics, right? Even they thought this was horrible. Well, what should they do? What should the church do? He says it five times. It can't be any more clear. Get rid of it. Let him be removed, verse 2. Deliver this man to Satan, verse 5. Cleanse out the old leaven, verse 7. Do not associate and do not eat with such, uh, such a one, verse 11. Drive out the wicked person among you. And let me be clear. The reason for this is not because this person is a terrible sinner. The reason for this person's removal is because he is a terrible sinner who does not recognize his own sin. He does not repent of his own sin. He does not declare a war against his sin. Sin has become who he is. He lives with it. That defines him. Did you notice in verse 11, these lists of sins? Well, they're not just a list of sins. They're in nouns, noun form, right? Look, sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, slanderer, drunkard, swindler. This is a person who's defined by that sin. And the problem with that is that we as a Christian are supposed to be defined by our relationship with Jesus. If our relationship with Jesus defines us, then we should be known as a people who have declared war on our sin, against our sin, to fight our sin not be defined by it, not be characterized by it. Uh, I don't know if you, uh, let me do a quick quiz. Uh, Whose who's, uh, um, image comes up uh, when I say some of these uh, sins? Uh, greed. Whose image comes up for you? For me, it's a Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> it's unfortunately a fictional character. Um, but uh, see, as adorable as this picture is, if Scrooge McDuck came to church and he continues to be defined by his greed, he has no place here. Whose image comes up if you think of sexual immorality? Idolater, swindler, a drunkard. If this person's relationship to the sin is that they're characterized, characterized by it instead of uh, declaring war against it, then this person must not be called a Christian because there is no remorse, there is no repentance, there is no fight against it, there is no turning away from it. And Paul tells this person, the, the church community to remove this person from the church. And normally, this would happen privately, uh, right? At Matthew 18, if you go back to Jesus' words of church discipline, most of these things are supposed to happen privately. When a person sins, it's one, or, one, or two, one, or, one person who goes to talk to this person about it. And if the, this person does not repent, you get one or two other people and then talk to them about it. And if the, this person still does not repent, then only as a last resort, it comes to the whole church. Most of it is supposed to be done privately. And public remo- removal isn't supposed to happen. But in this case, in the Corinthian church, the problem was that everybody already knew about this sin for a long time. 
And actually, he hasn't done anything about it. He has been characterized by it. He's even boastful of it. And that boastfulness has spread to the church community. It's infected others. And it's at that point, Paul says, you need to cut this person out from the church. Friends, even as I preach this, I just want you to know this is not something that I'm excited about preaching. First Corinthians 5 was not something that I, you know, I was going through the book and I thought, oh, wow, what an opportunity for me to tell people off about that. That's not how it is. It's not something that is, brings me joy, but it must be done. And it's difficult to do, and we should acknowledge the difficulties it's difficult in our church modern, uh, modern church context, I think often because we are a church, uh, very individualistic church. We are an age where we're individuals who come to church, um, uh, and we don't actually, we don't think church is a place where we are supposed to form relationships. Uh, how are we supposed to discipline each other if we don't know one another? And if we try to tell someone about their sin, they might say, well, you don't even know me. You don't even know why I'm doing these things. How are you supposed to speak into my life? We live in a church context like that. Culturally, it's difficult because we don't believe in mutual submission. We believe in the supremacy of the I. I decide what's right and wrong. Ultimate judge is not God. It's not other people. It's not the community. It's me. That decides what's right and wrong. So you can maybe give me advice on what I think about what's right and wrong, but you shouldn't tell me what is right and wrong. That's the culture in which we live. Of course, there's also a suspicion of authority, and some for many good reasons. There have been stories of abuse of authority in the church. Uh, the, the failings of the church leaders are very obvious in the media, in, in public. All sorts of sexual scandals, even pedophilia. You might say, who are you to do this? Who are we to do this? There are many instances where also church discipline was done badly. But even with all those things, all those failings, church, we are the body of Christ. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the people where God's Spirit is present. And God calls us holy people, a holy nation. And thankfully, this discipline isn't supposed to be done uh, by uh, one or two people who are holier than you. It's supposed to be done in the church. It's the responsibility of the entire church. Which begs the question, friends, are you a member of the church? Are you a member of the church? Are you, why are you here? Are you here to get to know one another? To get to know one another in such a way that you, say to, you can say to another person, could you help me to grow? I want to help you to grow. I want to speak into your life. Is that what we're doing? Are we willing to submit to words of God's truth spoken in love in the church? That's what membership should mean. I hope all of you will come to church, not to just be individuals, to take something and go away, but because God has brought us together as the body of Christ to grow in holiness for the purpose of Christ-likeness being born out of this community. Uh, Big public discipline should be rare. It should be rare. Um, But the small private disciplines, uh, it should be something that we're asking for from one another. We should be going to our friends here today and say, James, I, I have a problem with greed. 
can you ask me about it? Callum, I struggle with lust. Can you ask me about it next time you see me? Can we meet up to talk about this? We should be inviting others to speak into our life so that we might grow in holiness together. It's not a surprise that we're sinners, that we're tempted towards certain sins. But how we react to that rebuke from one another will reveal what's in our heart, whether we are striving towards holiness or whether it's just something else. And if it ever comes to the point where there needs to be public discipline, we need to do it rightly. We need to do it for the right reasons, reasons that God has given us. Have you ever yelled at a baby? Well, I have. <laughs> um, Barney was, I think, about six months old. I thought it was he was older, but Mary tells me he was about six months old. <laughs> he was crying in the middle of the night. I went into his room. I picked Barney up, and I said to him, Why are you crying? Go back to bed. Which is absurd, right? <laughs> and as I was yelling at him, I was thinking, This is absurd. <laughs> I shouldn't be doing it. He doesn't understand what's going on. But I did it because, you know, it made me feel better to yell at him. I needed to get it out. Actually, that's often, unfortunately, how discipline is done. Not for the benefit of the person being disciplined, but for the satisfaction of the one who's doing the discipline. For our self-righteousness, for us to feel smug while denouncing other people. That is not how it should be. First, it's done for the sake of the disciplined, the one unrepentant sinner. And Paul tells the church, verse 5, to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. I'm not exactly sure what this means, to hand this man over to Satan. Uh, some people think that it just means that, you know, kick that person out of the church from the realm of God to the realm of Satan. But then it says also for the destruction of the flesh. And that flesh is sarks, as our sinful nature. We're not exactly sure how it might happen. But it might, I, I can kind of envision it like this. You kick the person out from the church to out there and saying, look, you are no longer part of the, the, the church. And that judgment itself might bring about destruction of the sinful nature. Uh, let me give you an example. I don't know if you've ever been caught in a lie. Have you been caught in a lie? I, there, time to time, you know, we lie and we don't feel good about it. And sometimes like, yeah, people seem to know that you're lying and they tolerate it. They tolerate you lying. But sometimes they will, somebody will say, you're lying. That's a lie. Are you lying? And then have you, if you've ever been caught in a lie, I, mean, I can, you know, remember how this rush of shame comes to your face, right? You start realizing, yeah, this was bad. And if this person then tells you how bad it was, you might actually realize the, the consequence of your sin, the damage that you've done. And you might start realizing, actually, this was really bad. And there might be this longing for repentance to not do it again. And that's the kind of effect I think Paul is envisioning here. As the, you kick this person out, remove this person from the community and say, as a community, uh, brother, you, your sin is so terrible that your name can't be associated with this church, with Christ and with the Lord's table. And as we do that as a church, this, might, this person hopefully will say, oh, 
maybe this is really bad. Maybe really I need to take stock on what's going on. Church discipline isn't done to cancel people. It's to bring the person back, for that person to be saved on the day of the Lord. And if this person repents, then we are to welcome the person back. Because we are a community of sinners who are saved by God's grace alone. So we do it for the benefit of the person. Secondly, we're do- we, we do it to protect, for the benefit of the church, to protect the rest of the members of the church. Verse 6, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? The whole batch of bread, you know, this size, just needs a teaspoon of yeast. And that's a metaphor for sin. Sin is like that. A little yeast, if it's unnamed, if it's unchecked, it can spread. It can spread very quickly towards the whole community. I've seen it. In a church that I know, an unmarried couple was living together. Living together, sleeping together, and it was tolerated under the previous pastor for many, many years. And a news pastor came, and he tried to do something about it. Instead of the church coming to the pastor's aid, to support of the, 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 the pastor, the church turned against the pastor, saying, you're unloving, you're judgmental. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? We're also to exercise a spiritual discipline of church discipline to protect the reputation of Jesus and to strengthen our witness to the world. Because how many times have you been uh, accused of hypocrisy? The people of Corinth knew what was going on in this church and they thought it was bad. They thought it was terrible. And when the church... It fails when the church is hypocritical like this. When the watching world expects the church to be better and we don't live up for it to it, the reputation of Jesus is uh, is ruined. Our our ability to witness to the world is ruined as well. It suffers, and we've seen this right uncovered uh, sex scandals in the church and their cover ups. Uh, they came afterwards. It's not just the terrible things that happened. It was the cover-up in the church that really did disservice to the name of Christ. What if these uh, priests, what if these pastors were kicked, were named as sinners immediately, kicked out from their positions and asked to repent? What if there was no cover-up? It might have protected the reputation of Christ, our witness to the world. Church, we are God's holy people. If your faith is real, if your faith is real, the moment that you turn to Christ, there's something, a desire born in you, desire to become Christ-like, desire to pursue holiness, this hatred towards sin, this repugnance towards sin, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's how we know that we're born again as God's new people. And isn't it wonderful that our Lord frees us not just from the consequences of sin, but frees us from the power of sin, gives us through the Holy Spirit power to combat and to become more and more Christ-like. Church, that is what Jesus has done. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. We are a freed people. 
We are no longer tied to the slavery of sin. We are God's redeemed people. That is who you are. Therefore, get rid of the unleavened bread of malice and wickedness. Live as God's new people. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you because your son died for us and has called each of us through your amazing grace and love shown through Christ that we're saved, that we're forgiven. Lord, we thank you for giving us the spirit. We thank you for giving us this desire to grow in holiness, to combat and declare war against our sins. We thank you that your spirit is powerfully at work within us. And Lord, we pray now that you would give us that desire to cut out the parts of our life that does not please you. Help us uh, to be a church. Give us that desire to be accountable to others uh, so that others can speak into our life, that we can grow in holiness together as God's people. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us alone. We thank you that you have given us the church, given us the power of your spirit. We thank you that you are at work. Lord, help us to be your holy community. Your people will bear your name. Live us, help us to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.